hostility that Jesus faced from the religious leaders, a group that he calls the Jews. <laughs> he references it that way. Obviously, uh, John himself was Jewish, <laughs> right? So, uh, uh, as well as Jesus and everyone else in the, most of these stories, unless it says otherwise, right? So, um, but John uses that uh, to speak of the uh, uh, sort of the representation of that people group, the Jews as a people group, and uh, their representation. So, um, we see more of that hostility here in John chapter eight. Um, <clears throat> Beginning with the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Yay. <laughs> no. Uh, certainly an interesting story. Much has been said about it. That's where we'll begin. Let's read through the chapter as we do. So last week I did not read, uh, I did not read verse 53 of chapter 7. Uh, it, all it says is, and everyone went to his own house. Um, it's and and then this begins this this section here. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, right? So both of those are. It's really kind of a couplet that goes together. There, everybody else after the events of uh, that we just discussed in John chapter seven, everybody else went to their own house. Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives, which is a place where he frequently did. He prayed, right? It's something he regularly did. In fact, uh, this is probably why. Um, when he's being set up by Judas, why Judas knows where to go. He's like, oh, I know the spot, right? I know where he's going to be, right? This is probably a frequented place of Jesus when they were in Jerusalem. Remember, that's not the central base of their ministry, but all men are required to go to Jerusalem. Jewish men are required to go for three festivals in the year at least. Um, they were at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering, if you're reading through the law, Um and it was a fall festival where they would make these temporary little booths where they would live in them for a week. And we um, uh, we went over that a little bit last week. So um, <clears throat> anyhow, so let's read through the text. We'll pray and then we'll jump in. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the middle or in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's caught in in um, adultery, in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you? Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness isn't true. 
Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, and, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I, I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you can't come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They didn't understand that he spoke to them of the father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. But as my father taught me, I speak these things and he who sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, You are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son The Son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen in my father, seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we are not born. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from, came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. 
But because I tell you, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He was of God, hears God's words. Therefore, you don't hear, because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I don't seek my own glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I don't know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to the most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the middle of them and so passed by, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Well then, let's pray. And then we'll jump into this. Uh, I mean, this is a this is confrontation, right? Serious confrontation Jesus is having uh, with some of the, the Jews at this time. Even, as it says, some of the Jews who were believing him. Uh, so let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us more and more to depend on you. To find in you the solid footing, the, the sure foundation um, on which we are to build our lives in a world full of um, shifting sands. Our science, our knowledge continues to shift as it should. But what a joy to know that there is truth that never changes. God, I pray that you would teach us to lean on you, to pursue you, to trust you, to see you, my Father, in the face of your Son, Jesus, who proceeds from you. And as we observe, may we be like better than what happened to Moses when his face was shining out of your glory. A glory that was diminishing, so he had to cover his face with a veil. So that nobody would know. (laughs) Father, as we see you in your word, my prayer is that you would be changing us from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit whom you've given to us. Because you are not just a father 
sovereign ruler over everything, though you are that. You are not only the son who came to earth, who taught and suffered and died at the hands of your own, your own creation. But God, you are also spirit present with us, present this morning, whether we feel it or not, is true. Lord, let us be directed by truth, I pray. And let us embrace the words of, of our Savior Jesus, who said we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. Lord, would you set us free from the, the bondage of religious traditions that have nothing to do with your word? Would you set us free from the bondage of social mores that have nothing to do with, with what is real? And would you help us to walk in love? Because at the end of the day, if, um, if we're not doing that, then I, I don't suppose much else matters. So my Father, would you teach us to walk in love? Loving you and loving whoever it is that's close to us at any given moment. God, we need your help because I'm really selfish. So help me, Lord, help. Help me to think of others, I pray. Help, Father. Would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen. 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 All right, guys. So the last verse of chapter 7 is verse 53. We didn't read it last week. but the last verse says, and everyone went to his own house. So then we pick up chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. As we mentioned earlier, likely this is his, uh, a common practice of Jesus when he was going to pray um, there when they were in Jerusalem, uh, down in that area. Uh, typically, they stayed in a village on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So you have Jerusalem, you have the Kidron Valley. Uh, for you guys, Jerusalem would be here, and the Kidron Valley is on this side. And then the Mount of Olives is over here. And on the other side of that are the cities of Bethany and Bethphage. Uh, that's frequently where Jesus uh, stayed when they traveled down to that area. That's where Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived. I uh, was in that area. So we find him going to the Mount of Olives here. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees uh, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. So in case anybody thinks it's weird that I sit down and teach you, uh, there, right there, he sat down and taught them in the temple. So there you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Anyhow, the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, before we get into this text, I do need to mention to you, uh, if you have a a Bible with footnotes, you'll notice that there's a section of this text. It's the entire story of the woman caught in the act of adultery that's bracketed as possibly not uh, original, not part of uh, the original manuscripts. Now, this is from a certain body of texts. Uh, this passage is included in, and my my footnotes uh, specifically say, I, I believe it's in over 900 manuscripts. Um, but there is a, a group of manuscripts of um, of the copies of the New Testament books and letters uh, that is called the Nestle Allen and United Bible Societies text. It's a particular uh, set of those texts. Some people believe those to be older than the Textus Receptus text or the the text that the textus receptus was based on if none of that makes sense to you then uh then don't worry about it 
Um, but if you if you think about these things uh, as I have, I've pondered these questions and uh, wrestled with them myself. So uh, I think that the reliability of the text is really important. If what we're saying is this is true and this truth doesn't change, then the reliability of the text that we have is 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 very important to me. So. Anyways, I just want to make mention of that. Uh, some people bracket this section as uh, not part of it, but it is present in over 900 uh, of the manuscripts that we have of the early writings. Um, anyway, so continuing in that text, um, this woman caught in the act of adultery, the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. As it's been mentioned, if you've been taught through this passage before, where was the guy? You know, maybe he got away, you know, but like they're like, they were caught in the very act, you know. But uh, for whatever reason, they only bring the woman uh, to him. Some have suggested that maybe it was one of the guys who was bringing the woman to him. I, that seems incredibly far-fetched uh, to me. And just, that's just a made-up idea, right? There's no reason in the text to think that's uh, necessarily true. But um, anyway, so they caught this woman in the act of committing adultery. When they had set her in the midst, verse 3 continues, now verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Like as if that wasn't clear enough. Like, I mean, she was like, like we caught her, like right, you know, in the act of committing adultery. <laughs> okay. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And John reveals to us their motive. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Um, one of the things I think it's important to note about a lot of these confrontations that the religious leaders and other uh, others had with Jesus was that the motivation behind them wasn't like upholding true righteousness or judgment, right? They weren't they weren't interested in dealing with this lady caught in the act of adultery and dealing with her according to Moses. It doesn't seem that they were interested in it uh, for the sake of honoring Moses or the law. Rather, they were just trying to catch Jesus in something. If they could catch Jesus breaking or violating Moses, then such a, such a thing would discredit his ministry. It would discredit him as a traveling rabbi. And this is what they were after and essentially set him up for uh, for death, which is what they were what they were at the end after, right? They were after some reason to uh, accuse him to have him killed. Um, Moses did command uh, that if um, someone was caught in the act of adultery, that they were to be stoned. Um, not even necessarily caught in the act of adultery, but simply commit adultery, right? Um, have sex with someone uh, who is not your spouse, I think is a very basic way to understand uh, this word that we use as uh, adultery, Makes it sound so nice. They just committed adultery, you know, whatever. Okay. Or now we have an even nicer word now. We just say they had an affair, right? An affair? Like, an affair is like a party you go to, right? Like, I went I went to this affair the other day, and it was very nice. You know, <laughs> we, we make our, it, it's this funny thing that we do with language to ease the tension and the difficulty of our sin, to make it more palatable. Right. Caught in the act. Moses had said she said she should be stoned. Now, one of the things I think it's important to remember about Moses is this. Any capital punishment case, capital punishment is uh, the death penalty. Any death penalty case in Moses 
required at least two witnesses of the act. And I think that's such an important caveat because some people are like, whoa, the law of Moses had like a lot of people. You get killed for a lot of stuff. It's true. Right. (laughs) There was a lot of capital punishment as part of Moses. But capital punishment required two or three witnesses to the event. And if there weren't two or three witnesses, someone couldn't be convicted of that to the degree that it would result in actual capital punishment. I'm not here today to talk to you about the legitimacy of capital punishment or not. If you want to have that conversation, we can have another time. But uh, what I am wanting you to understand is the requirements of Moses, the requirements of the law as it relates to capital punishment. It required two or three witnesses to the act. Okay, This is vital to this story, right? Because now they're saying, well, we caught this woman in the very act. So they, the people who bring her, are the witnesses. And it's such a weird thing. Like, why are they bringing her to Jesus? Like, what does it have to do with if they were really just wanting to honor Moses? Like, they have the witnesses. They just, you know, take her before the Sanhedrin, right? Like, take her take her before the judges. Take her before the, the leadership of the Jews. But no, they're purposely trying to do something to get Jesus to at least look like he's breaking Moses' law. They're trying to get uh, some reason why, why they can discredit his ministry and what he's doing, the, the things that he's doing and claiming about himself. So this is an event uh, that they, they are using to try to do that. Um, John reveals, as we said, this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. It's the end of verse 6 now. <laughs> Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I love that so much. Like so, so much. <laughs> he just like... He hears them, and then, like, and the the way the story is is unfolded in in the writing is that he hears them, and I imagine he's like standing with them, listening to what they're saying, and then he just goes down and just starts writing in the ground with his finger and acts like he doesn't hear anything. And I think, what is he doing? <laughs> like, why, why would he do that? It's so weird. So, verse 7 says, When they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now, something that I think is important to remember is that this is not, (laughs) that was not in Moses. (laughs) Okay? Moses didn't require you to be without any sin in order for you to to um, execute capital punishment on somebody who was deserving of capital punishment according to the law. Okay, <laughs> that's just like a, a you know hearty amen. <laughs> um, but I want to mention something to you that I think is interesting. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of times when this idea of of somebody's finger in particular is mentioned. I think it's interesting that a digit a digit is mentioned here in particular because there's another place where a digit is mentioned and it is in Moses and not just any digit. In fact, Moses says it was the very finger of God who both carved out the first set of stone tablets on which the law was written, and then also wrote the the commandments on those stone tablets. Not just any finger, the finger of God. 
And now what do we see? We see the finger of God now stooping down and writing in the sand. Writing in in the ground. He wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And John doesn't say, but I, I just wonder, was he writing the law again? What if he just wrote out the Ten Commandments with his finger? Right in this moment, in the sand. Because the next question is, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Because if they had read the commandments again, they would have all been like, oh, never mind. (laughs) We're all guilty. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. When they continued asking him, as we read in verse 7, he raised himself up and said to them, he was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Sometimes this verse is pulled out of its context and used to say that you should never say something to someone else who is in sin or someone else who is continuing on in sin. This is, that's obviously um, a misuse of this particular verse. Um, certainly at the very core of it, we could say that um, something that should be addressed is that I cannot make a final judgment about someone in regards to their sin. And and certainly what they're trying to do is make a final judgment about this lady. Um, But even more so, uh, I think as the story continues to unfold, um, we find Jesus saying to her, go and and don't, don't keep on sinning. Don't continue on in your sin. And this was something they had also said to the paralyzed man that healed at the pool, right? Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing happen to you. So part of this idea of embracing Jesus isn't, and this is where that sort of the modern, like hippie Jesus wants to be, where Jesus is just all what, what's called love, except it's not really love that the Bible defines. It's a modern version of love that is really just accepting anything and everything, which is not actually what it means to love someone. I don't accept everything for my children and be like, well, I, I love you, kids, so I just let you do whatever. I just accept whatever you are. Well, well no, they make bad choices that can hurt them. I'm not going to accept all of those. <laughs> because I love them, I'm going to correct them because they will make choices that will hurt them or hurt others. And it's because of my love for them uh, that I seek to to uh, give them correction when it's necessary okay um, but the modern and it's not only modern right but we do have this modern concept of kind of a hippie Jesus who just uh, says oh just love everybody and and what we mean by that is not really again the biblical definition or idea of love as in self-sacrifice but rather it's more the idea of saying um, be totally fully Im- not just accepting but embracing of everything embracing everything anything that anyone wants to do that has nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. In fact, remember the last chapter when Jesus' brothers go to him and Jesus' brothers are like, hey, if you really want people to know who you are, if you want your disciples to really know who you are, go down to the, to the feast, go down to the festival of booths in Jerusalem and let them know who you are. Like, go, what are you doing hanging out up here? And Jesus' response to them was, I can't go right now. The, the world can't hate you guys, but the world hates me because I tell it that its deeds are evil. Right? That's the Jesus of the Bible. He's like, I... I tell people that what they're doing is wrong. And then I've also made a way for them to be forgiven. See, this is, this is good news. He doesn't just stand, stand in judgment or condemnation of us, but he's also made a way for us to be forgiven and our sin to be removed for, from us and for us to be embraced, yes, as we are, 
with him giving us himself so that we don't stay as we were. So that we can be being progressively changed. This is a process that the Bible calls (laughs) sanctification. A continual process of being set apart, of being changed. He was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. <laughs> this is why I wonder if maybe he was just writing the, writing the Ten Commandments again. <clears throat> the text doesn't say what he was writing, if any particular thing. only says that he wrote on the ground. He stooped down and wrote on the ground. Those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. I think that's probably pretty normal. As we get older, we become more, I think we become more and more and more aware of our incredible shortcomings. <laughs> I was a much better Christian when I was a younger man. <laughs> much better. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't. I thought I was. <laughs> I thought I was. The, the older I've gotten, the, the more aware I've become of my failure. And then that truth is met with his truth, that he's loved me all the while. Not more than, not less now, not less than and more now. He's loved me the same and he's been patient with me all the same. So they went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the middle, in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She's, and this is such a like a beautiful like moment, right? Because they were all just there just a few minutes ago. <laughs> woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Remember what Moses required for capital punishment? Two or three witnesses. But now in this court in front of Jesus, there are no witnesses. (laughs) His response is one of incredible grace, isn't it? (coughs) It's important to remember that she was, at least if the text is true, she was guilty. But he says, I don't condemn you. I want you to let that soak down into you <laughs> because you and I are guilty. And if you think anything less, if you think anything less than that, then then I think that we need to pay more attention to to the writings. We're guilty of disobedience to the Lord. And yet he still says neither do I condemn you. This is precious and it also puts me in a place to where I can be more gentle and more kind to my friends and to my spouse, and to my children, because they are guilty too. (laughs) And how I respond to that guilt uh, either can be uh, more like Jesus or more like me, (laughs) more like my flesh, uh, with anger and and jealousy and bitterness and envy and those other things, not not really the way of the Spirit. And so that's something I need to be considerate of and ask the Lord to work in me more. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And and we can't leave the text without that. 
Jesus' embrace of this woman who is guilty of sin is not one that says, go and do whatever you want. But it is, as it has been repeated, go and be free from this. Go and don't let this entrap you again, right? That's the issue of sin. Sin is a snare that catches you in it. Go and be free from this. That's it, this, is, this is a glorious promise, and I wish that sometimes we would hear it, hear it that way more. <laughs> like Sometimes people are like, Jesus said, go and sin no more. Like he's some like mean, brute person or whatever. I'm like, no, no. I think that we need to hear him differently. Go and be free from this. Don't let this entangle you anymore. Don't keep going on in that. Then, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I think this is, at least in the context, immediately, I think this statement is in direct relation to Jesus' statement to to go and sin no more. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. You won't continue on walking in darkness if we're following Jesus. That's the idea. This is something that John picks up and writes a lot about when we get to his first letter. When we get to 1 John, I encourage you to read that. Uh, It's only five chapters. Just just bang right through that. It'll only take you like 15 minutes. Just go for it. Um, Later today or tomorrow or something. Read through 1 John, um, where he he brings up these ideas of uh, whether or not we continue on in sin and what that looks like for us as believers. If you've been born of God, you don't continue on. You don't have to continue on in sin, right? Because you've been born of God. You've been born from above. And if his seed is in you, um, then there's freedom there. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He who follows me, as I've said many times, I think this is really the root of what it means to be a Christian, and unfortunately, it's not really culturally true. It's not really thought of frequently culturally that. But to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus, to be a person who hears what he says, who follows his commands, who does the things that he wants us to do uh, as he enables us to do that uh, because we trust him. Right? That's sort of the, that's very, the very root of this. I want to mention to you, though, about these statements about being the light of the world. Jesus would say to his disciples that they were the light of the world. That's another place that he says that particular thing. Um, I think about this, and uh, I remember that in the law, God said that, uh, in, in the law and the prophets, God said that Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to be a light in the world, and they failed <laughs> miserably. Uh, and and then, um, then Jesus comes, and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And then I think, is that the way the world sees us, <laughs> sees me as I follow Jesus? I don't mean to – I think about stuff like this a lot. I, I don't um, – I want to be careful about the idea of saying, um, because it can be very crushing to me personally, of saying, how does the world see Christianity at large or see the church at large? Oftentimes, that's not very good, right? <laughs> um, uh, in, in our culture, it tends to not be that way right now. There was a time when that was different, when many people culturally seed. seed. <laughs> That's when you saw something in the past, you seed it. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. That's wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, 
uh, in the past, uh, many people saw the church, I think, culturally as a, a positive thing, as a good thing. That that shifting in our culture it has been for a long time, and, uh, and and in a lot of ways, much of our culture sees the Christian church as um, a detriment to our society and not a not a benefit to it. Um, right? It's one of the reasons why, when things like um, income taxes and those sorts of things began to be um, embraced. Why we found the church being able to be uh, tax exempt from those things was because the church was seen as a positive entity in the community, something that would benefit the community. Of course, these ideas are shifting culturally and have been, as I mentioned, have been for a while now. Uh, and and um, to be fair, I mean, I mean for real, for maybe for good reason, right? Um, and we've said in the church uh, that there exists uh, both. Um, the external church that is seen, and then there is the the true church. Those who are maybe part of the broader idea or concept of the church, but those who are truly following Jesus. Um, but to someone who doesn't believe, um, that concept uh, just looks like arrogance. Um, <laughs> and uh, and begs the uh, sort of the no true Scotsman um, uh, logical fallacy, right? When you can say, well, they're not a true Christian because they say they're a Christian, but they're not doing this. Uh, but there is reality to that, even though that concept of truth is such a flimsy thing these days, right? What is true? I mean, can you be a cat? I guess you can be if you want to be these days if it's what you really feel you are inside you know I mean somebody's drawing those lines we're drawing them uh, just with uh, with mores with what becomes socially accepted or not um, but somebody's drawing the lines regardless I take this, these verses like this, I am the light of the world, Jesus said, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. And then, uh, as we mentioned in other places, Jesus saying to his disciples that, that they are the, the light of the world. And I internalize it. This is what I do with most of the scriptures anyways. And I ask myself this question, am I being a light in the um, relationships that I'm in? Am I being something that is helpful, something something beneficial? Am I giving uh, light to um, the truth of Jesus in the in my circles of influence uh, where I am, whether it's at work or whether it's at home or whether it's in my uh, community with my friends? Am I being light in that uh, in that group in that community? So uh, I also think about this in in um, maybe in other ways like. Things like, um, uh, I've heard many people who work in service industries say they hate like Sunday afternoon if they work in restaurants. They hate Sunday afternoon crowds after church crowds uh, because they're loud, obnoxious, and they leave messes, and they don't tip well, that sort of stuff, you know. And um, and I think like even simple things like that, like that's such a simple, like easy thing. Just be like, give them more money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just like. <laughs> surprise them. You know what I mean? Like it's such a small, easy thing to do um, <laughs> uh, that that uh, can make a different impression in the minds of people, even in such a small degree of um, 
of something like going to a restaurant and eating at a restaurant, you know. It seems like such a small thing, um, but it carries weight in our community. It carries weight when we don't do it. When we, don't, when we aren't generous, that carries weight as well. So anyways, moving on. If we don't move on, we won't finish, so let's move on. Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. This is what they're saying in re- response to him saying, I'm the light of the world. They're saying, oh, well, you're just, you're just telling us that about yourself. Therefore, your witness isn't true, because what did Moses say? Let everything be established the, on, on the word of two or three witnesses, right? So um, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness isn't true. Jesus answered and said to them, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Uh, because, like, it really is a logical fallacy to say, oh, because you're the only one saying it, it therefore isn't true, right? That's, that's illogical. Uh, just because only one person is saying something doesn't make it not true, logically, Um but uh, anyway, so even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, according to the body. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. The Bible tells us that Jesus will judge. Right now he's saying, I'm not judging this. He had mentioned that Moses would judge them previously. They had the words of Moses. Moses would judge them. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. This is what I've been referencing a couple of times now. right? That's what Moses said. Testimony of two men is true, two or three witnesses. Let every word be established. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So he's like, there's your two people. right? I bear witness of myself, and the Father bears witness of me. When did the Father bear witness of him? If nowhere else, at Jesus' baptism, when they heard the voice of God say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then you also have later on, the three of the disciples were able to hear something similar at the Mount of Transfiguration. And which, which Peter, who was there on that mountain, was so blown away, by, blown away by, he mentions that later on in one of his letters. He's like, we have the more sure word of prophecy confirmed. We heard his voice speak, <laughs> right? Like, Peter was so amazed by this thing. Right. This is something that, by the way, I address with my kids because my boys have asked me, why doesn't God say something to us now? I'm like, well, does that make it more believable that he says something to you directly? Can you not believe what he's what he said to someone else? Does that make it invalid simply because he's spoken audibly to someone else? Does that make God's word less valid because he spoke audibly to someone else and not to you directly? Does he then, therefore, in your mind, have to speak to everyone audibly? Is that what you're trying to say in order for them to to trust him, in order for them to believe him? And so I just try to at least point out for them sort of some of the fallacy of that thinking, of saying that it's not invalid just because he spoke to someone audibly in the past. And what we have to do is decide whether or not we're going to believe that and believe what their testimony is to us, right? It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't make it less valid or less important. Um, So he continues, I am one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me, as we said. Verse 19, then they said to him, where is your father? (laughs) I love that. Now, we, we have not heard anything at all about Joseph at all for a long time, right? This, the parts of the Bible that, that reference Joseph, um, sort of what we might call Jesus' adoptive father uh, here on earth, um, 
are, are very, very little. There's very little written about him. It's only at the beginning of the stories of Jesus. So we have to, we're sort of left to assume uh, that he's gone at this point. There are no other references to him. Later on, we find that um, Mary at the cross, that Jesus sort of gives the responsibility of taking care of his mother, Mary, to John, to the Apostle John, who's writing this, uh, this book here. Uh, so we find that happen later on. So some have speculated because of that, that Joseph has died uh, at uh, this point. But we just don't, again, that's speculation. We don't know because there's nothing actually written about it. Um, so they say to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know, neither me. My phone just said, finish up now. So that's my alarm. I just went off. <laughs> you know, neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Do you see the, the equating that he's, he's, he's equating himself with God? Do you see that? He, this is such an important thing because it's for this reason that the Jews became highly offended him, at him and eventually killed him because he's drawing this connection between himself and the Father and he's drawing this as an equality. He is equal with the Father and this is something that, that is laid out for us further on later in Scripture. Okay, This idea of Jesus' equality with the Father. He is not simply the Son of God as in a created being made later, but he is, he is the only begotten Son of the Father equal to him, equal to the Father in everything. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. That phrase that John's using over and over and over again about God's sovereignty in all of these things that are happening. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This is like straight, how's this for preaching the gospel, right? Like you're just going to die in your sin. This reminds me of of the story of Jonah, when Jonah finally gets to Nineveh, all Jonah's message is, is 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's literally his whole message. And everybody repents in sackcloth and ashes. Everybody's like, oh no. <laughs> right? And they all change their mind. And they all trust in the living God. Because of that message, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Right? Jesus is just being straight up with him. You will die in your sin. <laughs> And this was such an important thing for them to hear because many of them believed that they didn't have sin. That there was nothing between them and God. And Jesus made it clear that there was. And this is also an important thing in our sharing with other people. The gospel, the message of Jesus rescuing us from our sin, it presupposes the guilt of our sin, right? <laughs> like, it, it presupposes that we're guilty, that there's a judgment there, right? But we live in the midst of people who say, because we've been preached at, our self-esteem messages have been preached at us since we were children, that we're all okay. You're okay, I'm okay, everybody's fine. We're all good, it's not a big deal. Everything is fine. <clears throat> but we're not okay. There's none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek after God. We all have gone astray. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. I'm going away and you'll seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you can't come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you can't come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. Uh, Here's what I want to point out about that previous verse. The idea is that they're not understanding Jesus' words, which is something he's about to 
uh, sort of explain why they're not understanding. Will he kill himself? That's what they thought, because he says, where I go, you can't come. He said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you don't believe that I am, that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, who are you? Because his statement is, if you don't believe who I am, then you're going to die in your sins. So their question is, naturally, who then are you? Right? Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. The words of Jesus are the words of God. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, hey, Sometimes in our songs we sing, let's lift up Jesus, or we used to do this. We don't do that anymore so much. But like we did that a lot in the 90s and the early 2000s. Lift up Jesus, lift him up. Every reference to that in in John's gospel, like of Jesus saying, when you lift up the Son of Man, is a reference to being lifted up on the cross, of him being killed. When you kill me is what he's saying. Like when you, and it's, it's interesting because at this point we have no inclination of Jesus uh, of, of at least the, the religious leaders actually knowing how he's going to die. Right? Eventually, they're going to come to the place where they're, they're able to persuade the, the Greeks to crucify him, or the Romans to crucify him, right? They're going to get to that place, right? <clears throat> um, but Jesus knows. Then <laughs> they said to them, uh, he, Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Remember Jesus' baptism? We see the Holy Spirit descending on him in the form of a dove. And this idea of the promise of the Spirit seems to be wrapped up in all of this and in the ministry of Jesus itself. Then Jesus said to those who believed him, listen, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, let me repeat that. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. I'm sorry, did you hear me? He said to those Jews who believed him. The reason why I'm stressing this is because everything that follows after is kind of shocking for him to say to the Jews who are believing him. Okay? I'm stressing this on purpose. Do you, can you remember? Let's keep it in our minds. <laughs> okay? <laughs> then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you remain in my word, abide is to, to live somewhere. Your home is your abode. It's where you abide. It's where you remain living, right? Hopefully. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Terrible terrible thing to say. Anyways. Um, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now that, that makes things really hard when you live in an age where everyone is saying, what is truth? It wasn't just this age, was it? Pilate said the same thing. What is truth? Your truth? Oh, your truth isn't the same as my truth. Oh, truth changes. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about preferences. We're talking about what is real and what is unchanging. But what is real and unchanging flows out from the idea that there is a God who is sovereign, who himself never changes. (laughs) And when we've rejected that idea, 
then sure, everything is relative. Because what I think is true or what I believe is true, I have no legitimate authority over you to tell you that what you believe or what you think is true is not true or not right. But if there exists a being above all of us, one who doesn't change, then it is what he says that is true. And it's to his truth, to that reality that we, that we appeal. Not into our swaying opinions about things. Jesus said to them, as we read, to those Jews who believe, if you abide in my word, I cannot read your Bible. <laughs> you can't live in his word if you're not hearing his words. Meditate on the scriptures. Read your Bible. And when you're done, read it again. And when you're finished, read it again. And then read it again. The reason why I keep saying that to you is because it's hard to keep doing. It's hard because we're distracted and because there's so many other things. And I know it because I wrestle with it all the time. It's hard for me to stop and sit down and read my Bible because I have another TV show I want to watch or I have another video game I want to play or I'm just busy because I have work stuff to do. And it's also hard for another reason. It's hard to sit down and just read my Bible and to spend time thinking about it because this is a spiritual exercise. And you know what? My flesh doesn't like that, does it? Because the flesh, my body fights against the spirit and the spirit fights against the flesh. My flesh says, oh no, just veg out. It's fine. You deserve a break. A break? Why do I need a break from reading God's word? <laughs> If you wrestle with reading your Bible, welcome to the club. God help us to find ways to support each other in that, to encourage each other, to continually be reminding each other of the scriptures and of the word, of the truth of, of his word. If you abide in my word, you are my, you are my disciples indeed. Truly, you're my disciples. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I think this is important because this is what was said to the Jews who believed him. But Jesus is saying, it, it's if you abide in my word, it's, if, it's, if, if you remain in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Okay? Because there's a dis distinction between somebody who says, oh, I believe him, and somebody who abides in his word. <laughs> right? Do you see that? Jesus is even drawing that distinction here. This is what he said to those who believed him. If you remain in my word, then you're truly my disciples. Do you see he's drawing a distinction there? Because many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? And he'll say, I don't, I don't know who you are. And that's going to be a crushing day for many who've culturally embraced a concept of Jesus, but who don't really know him. This is why I found nothing better to do than to just try and read the Bible with you and talk about it together, because I don't want that to be any of you. Um, so Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Let's finish up real quickly. 
We only got like, what, 20 verses left? <laughs> we got it. The, the truth will make you free. They answered him. I mean, these people must be just poorly taught. Like, they're not historians, apparently. Uh, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> like, like, right, 400 years in Egypt, you know? Like, I mean, I mean, it was even told them before they went that they were going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, right? 400 years in Egypt. And then, like, after that, you, like, read through the book of Judges, where they're, like, under bondage to, to like, these, these like, pagan leaders and stuff. And then God kept sending these, de- these judges, these deliverers, over and over and over again, you know. And then, and, and then not to mention, like, the Babylonian captivity, right? Like, you were, you were held as slaves in Babylon, right? And, like, under the Medan-Persian Empire, until eventually you were allowed to come back. But then still, they're still under, oh, we're not slaves, they're still under Roman authority. Like they have, and, and they have a lot, Rome gave them a lot of, a lot of liberty under that authority, but like they're still under Roman governors <laughs> and Roman leadership, like, like much, much of that, that Middle Eastern and, um, and, um, I think the Eastern European world was at the time. Okay. <laughs> We've never been in bondage to anyone. <laughs> What? <laughs> oh man, but it also reminds me of what our arrogance does for us. And I think this is a dangerous thing for something that we need to think about as Americans because uh, our American nationalism nonsense has gotten way out of hand. And it is a pride that blinds us to history frequently. And sometimes I hear people saying things about American history and I'm like, no, that didn't happen. No, that's not, no. I think that we need to be cautious <laughs> uh, and, and examine things and, and really re-examine some of the rhetoric that we've been taught. Um, frequently, between two parties uh, and their stories, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Okay. I think it's wise to remember that. Uh, remember Solomon said in the Proverbs, uh, when you've heard one person's story, you immediately agree, right? <laughs> yes, that's true. That's right. You're, you're right. And we do this with our friends all the time when they're complaining to us about like their spouse or about like what their friend did or whatever. We're like, well, of course that's terrible. Of course that's horrible. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right. And then we like take their side and like you talk to the other person and you're like, oh, somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle of those two sides is frequently where the truth lies. <clears throat> we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? <laughs> Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. This is something that Paul picks up in his letter to the Romans. Very clearly, he lays out this idea that we have the ability to walk in the Spirit and to be free from sin, but the person who sins is the slave of sin. And sin, he says, should not rule over you. Okay. It should not control us. Though, even as I follow Jesus, sometimes I allow it to. And he has to come and say, Jason, I love you. Go and sin no more. <laughs> Stop this. Stop. You can be free. You can be free 
from the control that your sin has over you. And I want to make sure that you hear this. Because it's an important part of walking together with Jesus is the liberty that we get to have as we continually walk with him and we find freedom from the sin that that at one time ensnared us. I can say, though I am a much worse sinner now than I once was, (laughs) at least in my own mind, (laughs) I thought I was better before. I can say that there are things in my life that I used to struggle with that somehow God has set me free from. And, And there were days when I thought, Lord, will I ever be free from these thoughts? From this thing, will you? Will I ever be free? And then somehow, ten years down the road, I look back and I think, you yeah, haven't even thought of that in, in five years. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Because you've been kind to me. You've been good to me. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be truly free. You shall be free indeed. And it is Jesus who gives us liberty, who gives us freedom. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 4, 5. Read through those on your, on your um, own time, please. You've got a lot of assignments this week. 1 John, read through the whole book. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. Read through that stuff, too. Uh, knock that out this, this week, guys. Um, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because um, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. They're not going to like what Jesus has to say here. Uh, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham didn't do this. Abraham didn't try try and kill me. Uh, You do the deeds of your father, which I think is interesting. Um, Abraham didn't reject the truth, I think is the general idea here. But uh, you do the deeds of your father. And and still, they've got to be confused about what he means when he's saying, you're doing the stuff that that your father does. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Like, wait a minute, didn't you just say that Abraham was your father? And like, we have one father, it's God. God is our father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. This is a part of the official doctrine of the Trinity, the statement that Jesus proceeds from the Father. And if you are having difficulty understanding what that means about a triune eternal God who has always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit, then welcome to the club. Because <laughs> we wrestle with this because God is, in fact, he is a being that there is no other being like him. Does that make, do you understand what I mean? There's nothing else like him. He alone is God. And as God, he exists forever as Father, Son, and Spirit. And there is no other being like him. Nothing else is like him. Everything else, in fact, everything else that exists is something he made. Just something he created. Worlds, planets, space, galaxies, time, stars, people, (laughs) angels. What about the demons? Did he make those? Yes, they're called angels. He made them. Um, if God were your father, you'd love me for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you, you are not able to listen to my word. He, He answers his own question. Why are you not able to understand what I'm saying? Because you're not able to listen to my word. 
this is a place where Jesus goes, where like John is laying out for us some of these teachings of Jesus that deal with, with God's sovereignty and his sovereignty in calling and in rescuing and saving people. Because you were not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. Uh-oh, now he told him who their father really is. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Ooh. And does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. I think this is an interesting thought to wrestle with. This idea of God's sovereignty and of of when people say, how do we deal with the problem of evil and where does evil come from? And Jesus is saying, when, when the devil lies, he's speaking of himself from his own resources, from himself. It's something that's coming out of him. Now, there are times in the Old Testament, and I'm probably going to offend half of you here, and that's fine. There are times in the Old Testament where uh, something needed to happen, and so God sent a spirit to somebody, and it was like a lying spirit. And so the spirit would go and like tell somebody a lie, whatever. You'd be like, what? <laughs> I'm telling you, you read through the Old Testament, and you're like, whoa, God's really in charge of everything, isn't he? You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He's the, the dad of lying. And in, in the book of Revelation, you get to the end of it, where it talks about all of the, the wickedness that's going to be thrown into the lake of fire eventually. Um and, and it's like, and all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. And you're like, oh, that's me, <laughs> right? Like, like even if there were nothing else in that list that convicted you, um, like, and everyone who's lied, like, oh, okay. All right, then. I need someone to save me. Jesus is our Savior. But verse 45, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? This is him like saying, like, you're, you're trying to say that I'm doing something wrong, but like, you're not actually, there's no sin in my life that you're bringing up. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I, if I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you don't hear. Jesus is answering his own questions. If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Because he was of God, hears God's words, therefore you don't hear because you're not of God. That is not what they wanted to hear. But here's what I want you to understand. In hearing this, in hearing statements like this, some of them would have been so, I think, accosted by those words that it would have challenged them in what they thought they believed and true and, and they thought was true. And in fact, maybe some of them were saved. <laughs> maybe some of them became rescued in hearing these very hard words because it shook them out of their complacency. And that's a hard thing to do with people who are comfortable with where they are, isn't it? Sometimes it takes jarring things like death or sickness or trouble or calamity to jar us 
out of, out of complacency, to get us to consider reality. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. But I, I, it's interesting, by the way, they're like wanting to say like, they're calling him bad names. You have a demon. Also, you're a Samaritan. Like, if you didn't, if you didn't understand yet, like the way that the Jews viewed that group of people, the Samaritans, like it was harsh, man. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. Like, it's like the worst thing they could think to call him. You know? It's terrible, right? <clears throat> Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I don't seek my own glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon because Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. They realize that when Jesus said that, he's making himself above Abraham and the prophets because they're dead. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I don't know him, I'll be a liar like you. (laughs) But, But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. And you might be saying, what does that mean? And I'm saying it here with you. Some have suggested this could be um, when Jesus met with Melchizedek, or Jesus, when Abraham met with Melchizedek. Um, I think possibly there's a possibility of this angel of the Lord situation happening when the angels came before the destruction of Lot. Remember, they came to Abraham's tent. Um, also, the angel of the Lord came to Abraham when um, um, before he had Isaac to give the promise again that it was through Isaac that his seed would be called. Because Abraham's like, no, 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 let Ishmael live. And God's like, nope, I'm not going to do that. Um, it's through Sarah. And then Sarah is in the tent and she laughs because she's like, am I going to have pleasure? Am I going to get pregnant? I'm, I'm old. <laughs> I'm past the age of, of, of uh, bearing children, you know. So I think if we look back at those stories, maybe any of those moments, we might say, are Abraham seeing his day? They're confused by this, obviously. And he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Abraham lived hundreds of years before this, right? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And it's written that way. In, in on purpose. Our translators wrote it that way on purpose. Later on in Moses, when Moses says to God, God, when they ask me who sent me, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. I am that I am, or I am who I am. <coughs> Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you have any, if you wonder if they understood what Jesus was saying, just look at their response. Their response, then they took up stones to throw at him. That's the consequence of blasphemy. Because they realize what Jesus is saying about himself now. 
They took up thrones. They took up thrones to stow at him. <laughs> they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the middle of them, and so passed by. He was able to make it out of that situation. And and I think it's it's interesting. Like he hid himself from them. That's such a like normal thing that people do to like get away from people. He didn't just command them all to fall over dead. Could have done that. Could have called an angel to just wipe them out, you know. He hid himself from them. And then going through the midst of them passed by. I don't think there was any confusion in their minds about what Jesus was claiming about himself. And this infuriated them. Uh, Sadly, there are still people in our day that have a lot of misunderstandings about who Jesus is and who he claims himself to be. Before Abraham was, I am. When you read through Moses, let me remind you of this too. A little interesting thing. That name, Yahweh, Jehovah, or Yehovah. I am that I am. Um, Interesting thing to me is that God says that he was not known by that name to any of the fathers, but but he was known by that name to Moses. He revealed himself by that name to Moses. But then when you read the Old Testament, you find that name used even in the book of Genesis, which is another reason why I believe Moses actually wrote Genesis, even if he functioned more as an editor uh, than other things. There's a lot of criticism about who actually wrote some of those ancient documents, but uh, one of the reasons is that, that I believe it is that in Genesis chapter 2, when God first starts dealing with the creation of man, is the first time we see the name mentioned. Jehovah, Yahweh, is in Genesis chapter 2. But that's a name that God said he didn't, the fathers didn't know him by that name, but, but Moses did. So anyways, just want to throw that out there for you as you're reading the Bible, because I want you to enjoy that and wrestle with him. <laughs> okay, uh, let's pray, guys. Father, I thank you for your patience with me, for the patience of my friends with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to be people who lay our trust in you, God. Lord, help us to believe you. <laughs> Let us be people who abide in your word. And then we will be your disciples, truly. Your disciples. Help us to encourage each other in the word, I pray. Give us the wisdom and strength and love to do that for each other, for our spouses and our children, for us as friends, as a community. And help us to share, (laughs) please. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being present with us. Would you heal us? Would you, Lord, would you let your word be like a a healing balm that settles and comforts, gives peace, not like the world gives. God, do in us what only you can. That's what I want. That's why I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. And the Lord lift up his smile, his countenance on you and give you peace. Thank you guys so much for your patience with me.